What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. PJ Mastin is a businesswoman, sexual assault survivor, and victim advocate from New Jersey. She began her career with a Playboy company in 1975. Over the years, she fulfilled many different roles, most of which were managerial. In 1982, she freed herself from Playboy after an immense amount of documented verbal, emotional, mental, and physical abuse. The moment the docuseries The Secrets of Playboy debuted, PJ solidified her role as a victim advocate and a true inspiration for survivors. I knew I had to talk to her about what came next after her corporate career and how she persevered. Thank you so much for joining us, PJ. I appreciate your willingness to chat with me. If you don't mind, please tell our listeners about yourself and your journey. I live in Naples, Florida with my little rescue dog. I am retired now. I had an illustrious career and I've had a lot of trauma in my life. I was a very young bride. I was just turned 19. I was in a really bad relationship. My husband was violent. A year and a half later, I got out of that relationship and I went back home to my parents in New Jersey. My dad had a trucking business and all of the uh, guys came in from work one day. I was at the typewriter. They had a box of Playboy magazines and they said, PJ, why don't you go up to Great Gorge Playboy and get a job as a bunny? I was working as a medical and surgical assistant. I never thought to take my clothes off. My mother talked to me. She thought it would be a really good thing for my self-esteem because I was battered pretty badly from my short marriage. My mom and dad convinced me and they drove me up there to Great Gorge. They went and had lunch and I went to the bunny department. The bunny mother said, put a bathing suit on, which I did. We talked for a few moments. She said, lose 10 pounds and take the braces off your teeth and start two weeks from Monday. I had planned to go back to Marathon. I was staying in Marathon in the Keys. That night, my girlfriend from high school called me. She said, I heard you were up here for an interview, PJ. And I said, yeah, but I'm going back to Marathon. She said, do you realize how much money we're making? I said, no. She said, I'm working 30 hours a week in 1972. And she was pulling in between $700 and $1,000 in cash. I was like, wow, I got a lot of bills to pay off. And I had my ex-husband's college loans in my name. I knew I had to pay them off. So I went up there. I moved into the dormitories and you train for two weeks. It's pretty strenuous. Then you're out on the floor waiting tables and serving guests. As I was working as a Playboy bunny, I fell down the service stairs and I broke my back. I had four laminectomies and two spinal fusions. So needless to say, I couldn't put that costume back on and bend over backwards with three inch high heels. It was impossible. I was fused. 
there was an opening for an assistant bunny mother in New York City. And my parents only lived six miles from there. And I said, oh, I'll take it. I worked there for about a year and a half. Then I was promoted to Los Angeles to the uh, Playboy Club on Avenue of the Stars as the bunny mother. I worked there for quite some time. They needed somebody to go to Chicago to oversee the club because they didn't have a bunny mother there. So they asked me to go up there for six weeks. So I went up there for six weeks. I love city life. I just love being in the city. I decided to stay there because I was told by several of the executives, if you want to move up in the ladder, you have to work at corporate. That's what I wanted to do. So that's what I did. I took the position and I was a bunny mother in Chicago working for Playboy. You met a lot of important people, a lot of celebrities, directors, journalists, writers. The interviews were held at the corporate office, usually for the magazine. So you got to meet a lot of celebrities and very affluent people. So that was a big plus. I had no problems with the bunnies. I was their boss and I was pretty lenient. They would have an evaluation every year on their physical appearance. It just upset me so much. They had a listing of what we had to check off. Crepey skin, sagging chins, wrinkles, horrible things. I refused to do it because that stays with you forever. How could a woman critique another woman and that not have an effect on this young girl? These were young girls. They were in their 20s. They were terminated for physical appearance and I wouldn't do it. So that kind of put an edge with my boss because I didn't defer to what they wanted me to do and write terrible things about the girls and their appearances. So I had a tough relationship with my boss. She was in corporate office, so she'd always come down and check, make sure I was doing my job. I've been working for Playboy for 10 years. I was not cooperative in a lot of the things that they wanted. I'd get a phone call from corporate upstairs take bunny Amy off the schedule. She's going out with whoever tonight. I'm not a pimp. This is a scheduled assignment. They're working in the Playmate Lounge as a cocktail waitress. What do you mean take her off the schedule? Well, this one wants to go out with her tonight. It was terrible. I hated it. I didn't have that problem in any other clubs. And I work in six Playboy clubs and resorts. Corporate was the only situation that I had that would call up and say, take this one off the schedule. I'd have to replace her at the last minute. The management culture was very questionable. Snide remarks, off-centered comments. The Playboy Club was right in the corporate headquarters. After work every day, they would come down, and all the bunnies knew who these executives were, and some of them were dating them. Some of them were more than dating them. The executives had a free-for-all with the young ladies, and I was furious. I was told if I didn't cooperate, I wouldn't be working in corporate. Because they were vice presidents, they made a lot of money, they had a lot of clout, and they wanted to be on the arms of these men. My morals were totally different. We had an executive that kept a bunny. See, Playboy in Chicago also had a hotel attached. It was a Playboy club and hotel, the Knickerbocker. I can't tell you how many times I'd have to run upstairs and bang on the door to get this one bunny out because she was sleeping with the executive and she had to be on the floor to work her shift. Are you kidding me? And she was late. Don't mark her late. It had a lot of dissension with the other girls because certain girls were treated differently because they were sleeping with the executives. Can you explain how your experiences went from butting heads and difficulty advocating for a healthy work environment for the bunnies to trauma and physical abuse? Did you notice a progression? Absolutely did. I'll give you an example. Bill Cosby was in the club, which he was in all of the clubs all of the time. 
he was doing a performance outside of Illinois, but he was in the club at lunchtime with Maggie Daly, who was a social journalist at the uh, Trig in Chicago. She was interviewing him for his upcoming show. Now, I knew Bill Cosby for five years. I knew him in Great Gorge, New York, L.A. He was always around, and we were friends. It wasn't like a stranger. It was friendly. After he had the interview, he said, PJ, have you had lunch yet? And I said, no, I haven't. I've been seating the room. So he says, come on. I went around the corner with Cosby, and we went to a little place called Banquet on a Bun, had a hot dog and French fries. He was behind the counter cooking, and everybody's laughing, and everybody had fun. So I went back to work. And later that evening, I got a phone call from Cosby. He said, do you want to go out to dinner tomorrow night, PJ? And I said, sure. Not thinking anything of it because I knew this man. I had dinner with this man in the club. Everybody knew him. Never was a threat. So I said, sure. He called in the morning. He said, meet me at the Whitehall Hotel at 7 o'clock. I said, okay. I finished up my work, and I walked three blocks to the Whitehall Hotel. And at that time, you had a call from downstairs to find out where the person was or to call to tell him to meet you downstairs. So I called up. He was in the penthouse. I says, I'm downstairs. Let's go. And he says, why don't you come up for a drink before we have dinner? I said, okay, not thinking anything of it. I went upstairs to the penthouse, knocked on the door. There were four men in there besides Cosby, drinking liquor and smoking cigars, watching some sports on TV. They didn't acknowledge me at all. I'm a very friendly person, but they didn't acknowledge me. So Cosby said to me, what would you like to drink? I wasn't much of a drinker. I was 27. I said, well, I'll have a Grand Marnier. Now, everybody knows Grand Marnier is an after-dinner drink, so I was pretty much a novice when it came to drinking. The amazing thing was he had a whole bar set up in the room, but he called the bellhop. Bellman came up. He handed him $100. He says, go around the corner and get me a bottle of Grand Marnier. Ten minutes later, the kid knocks on the door, gives the bottle to Cosby. He says, PJ, do you want it on the rocks or do you want it straight up? Not thinking, why didn't he call down to room service? He had a whole bar there from room service. I said, I'll take the drink on the rocks. I took two sips, two sips. And that's the last thing I remember until four o'clock in the morning. I woke up in bed naked. I looked to the left and there was Cosby naked. I knew I was raped. I tried to sliver out of the bed, not to wake him. My clothes were all over the floor. I was bleeding down my leg. I was bleeding so badly because what Cosby did was he sodomized. I collected my clothes, put them on as best I could, and I got out of the hotel and there was blood dripping down my legs as I got into a taxi cab to go home. I went home, turned on the shower, and screamed in the shower for two hours. I had to go back to work. So I go back to work, get the girls on the floor. I don't say anything. Later on in the day, I called my boss, Harriet. I told her I needed to speak to her. She said, all right, I'll come down to your office. She came to my office and I told her what had happened. She said to me, well, you know, Bill Cosby is Hefner's best friend, right? I said, it doesn't matter. He drugged me and raped me. And she said to me, if you want to keep your job, I suggest you shut your mouth. That's the corporate climate in management. And that's what I did. I kept my mouth shut. Because that was the first person you reported it to. If that's the first gatekeeper you've met and they're already silencing you, you can't expect any other sort of support further up. No, not at all. In the days after PJ's assault, her attacker continued to contact her. 
While we listen to her account of his behavior afterwards, it's important to remember that in the 1970s, when you picked up the phone, you had no means of knowing who was calling you until you heard their voice. Cosby kept calling. I picked up the phone. I'm like, how did he get this number? Because I was on a private line. He said, why did you leave? I'm like, why did I leave? He said, well, come out and have lunch with me. I said, no. He says, I'm sending you something. About four o'clock in the afternoon, a guy from the florist came in and he had a four foot ficus tree. There was a note on there, which I still have. And it says, take good care of yourself, Bill Cosby. And then he called the next day and he said, did you get the tree that I sent you? I'm scared to death to talk to this man now. I said, yes, I did. And then he proceeded to tell me how I had to stick my finger in the soil to see if it needed water, to turn it around and clip the dead leaves off. He went into this whole thing about taking care of this plant. And I said, I have to go. He called for weeks. I refused to go out with him. Then he started calling the office again for different bunnies. Can you get Bunny Marsha? Can you get Bunny Amy? Can you get Bunny Diane? I said, I can't give them this phone, but I'll take a message. And I just kept ripping the messages up. I wouldn't give it to the girls. Despite reporting the assault, PJ shares that the work-related abuse she faced did not waver at all afterwards. We had to move the club from Michigan Avenue to Lincoln Park. And we had a general manager. He was a nasty man. He would constantly say, you have to go out with me, PJ. And why are you wearing a bra? This is Playboy. The girls started complaining to me that he was grabbing them, touching them, blowing smoke in their face and asking them if they had any sex the night before. So I called a bunny meeting. It was just for the bunnies. I had all the notes and the girls were allowed to speak. They said he doesn't stop. He's constantly asking me about my sex life. All of these complaints. I brought it to my boss, Harriet. Two days later, they told me that I was being transferred to Great Gorge. They did nothing to the general manager. I had 40 girls complaining. They just sent me to Great Gorge. They kept him, who had never had experience with a Playboy club or a private club, but they kept him and they got rid of me. What year did you leave Playboy? 82. The clubs all closed in 82. Leaving corporate was the best thing I ever did because I didn't have the hounds crawling all over me. I knew what was going on. They knew I knew. I had different morals than Playboy did. What came next for you? Was there any sort of justice served for you specifically? After I left Playboy, I moved to New York City, and I worked as the National Director of Sales and Marketing for a large travel firm. So I traveled quite a bit. I enjoyed that very much. But there's no legal justice for me. Statue of limitations ran out long ago. Statue of limitations is the worst thing that ever happened to this country. The statute of limitations is what's holding everybody back. Statute of limitations is the period of time in which people have to pursue legal action before a dispute at hand can be considered too old to uphold in court. The statute of limitations for felony sex crimes, and all crimes for that matter, varies state to state. However, Kentucky, Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming are currently the only states that have abolished all statute of limitations for felony sex crimes. The Bill Cosby trial was horrible. It was horrible. Talk about death threats. I had guys sitting out in front of my house, watching my house. They tried to shut us up, the Cosby people. But you just have to persevere. How did you cope with that re-traumatization? 
Early on, I started cutting myself. I started cutting my thighs and my arms to release that stress. It was like poison inside of me. It was the weirdest thing to explain. I went into therapy for quite some time. I'm still in therapy 20 years later, but it all took a really bad turn. Right after 9-11, we could see the Twin Towers from our house. Then October, our house burned down to the ground. My mom and I were in it. We got out in the nick of time. Right after that, I had a complete nervous breakdown. I was in Hackensack University Hospital for 17 days. They didn't think I was going to make it. I just completely shut down. It was just a horrible experience. But I did come out of it, and I'm still in therapy. I no longer cut. I take a lot of medication. I have complex PTSD and severe anxiety disorder. I deal with it. It's not easy. But thank God I have a wonderful therapist. She's been with me for almost 20 years. I have a pharmacological psychiatrist that handles the brain chemicals and the medication that I take. So I have a good pairing of healthcare workers for me. I need to appeal to the listeners about trauma. You have to understand something, and a lot of people don't get this. When a person is raped, not only is their physical body raped, but their spirit is raped and their soul is raped. And that act of violence in a body plays out and that violence stays within the DNA of your body. You can forget things or put them in the back of your mind, but your body will always know that it suffered trauma. You have to get therapy. Number one, get into therapy and get the proper medication. I've been on probably 40 different medications until they find the right cocktail. I've had several therapists. For me as a female, it was important to have a female as my therapist. At one point I had a psychiatrist in New York said, are you sexually turned on by me? I couldn't believe he said that. I fired him and I kept searching for other therapists until I found the right one at the university hospital. That helps you to get by and it has helped me. I have to say that I no longer look forward to driving off a cliff. I have a good life here. I have good healthcare workers and it's a constant battle. I battle it every single day of my life, but I'm a survivor. I'm here to help survivors of any kind of trauma. Your resiliency is mind blowing. Speaking of helping other survivors, how was it to film The Secrets of Playboy? And what was it like to watch it back? I have to be honest with you, Amy, I don't remember. I really split off. Everything was black and I was in this little cocoon. So when I was watching it, I was listening to my words for the first time because I was not present. That's what happens to rape victims and trauma victims. They separate. I didn't remember anything. It was very triggering, really hard to watch. And every week we had to tune in to see what we said. I mean, when you're dealing with something so outrageous, and you know what I'm talking about, Amy, you're watching yourself on TV and you're saying, oh my God, I don't remember saying that. And those memories are triggered. Took me at least six weeks to recover from watching it. It was so traumatizing or re-traumatizing. I was the first person on the screen in episode one, and it continued for 12 episodes. I got death threats. I got horrific, nasty, vile emails, dozens and dozens of horrible, horrific things said to me by former Playboy bunnies. You have no idea the disgusting things that came through social media. I mean, vulgar, disgusting things. 
you should die. You're a liar. Nobody believes you. We love Hefner. And within this, they started a We Support Hefner site. And there's 500 former bunnies that signed this petition that We Support Hefner. First of all, 99% of these former bunnies never even met Hefner. They never even met him. It's a cult. What people don't understand is people continue to defend Hefner and the climate that existed. They're indoctrinated. It's no different than Jimmy Jones or Waco, Texas. It's a cult. What you saw in 12 episodes of drugging and pig night, you saw it, Amy, and they still continue to defend him. People don't realize that just because someone might have been pleasant in a few moments that they met them, that person's experience or meeting doesn't negate your experience, right? If they get a sugar-coated version of someone, that doesn't mean that was the real version. And to add, even while having or honoring their own experience, they could still very much validate and support you. Yes, uh, yeah. We had several Facebook pages, the Bunnies of LA, the Bunnies of New York, the Bunny Conventions and all this other stuff. They blocked me from every single one. I worked for Playboy for 10 years, the only person that was a bunny mother in six clubs, and they blocked me. Actually, it's better because I don't have to deal with that. I can heal, and I realize where they're coming from. It absolutely breaks my heart that anyone would reach out to you after seeing any portion of your interview in a negative way and without support. You deserve way, way, way better. I will tell you, though, the other side of the coin is that when the series came out, I got emails, private messages and DMs from former bunnies that said he did me too, PJ. He got me too, meaning Cosby. So it brought out a lot of support from bunnies regarding Hefner that knew him. I hope it was way more support than non-support. No, not even close. Sandra had the same thing. Horrible, horrible attacks. It's my understanding that there's going to be a season two of Secrets of Playboy. And the things that were left on the cutting room floor will be included, and they're pretty horrific. I can't talk about them because they'll probably be in the season two. I was so deeply moved by the documentary, The Secrets of Playboy. I was also appalled and heartbroken. I felt for you as you shared the depth of the trauma that you faced. And I commend you and appreciate you so deeply for gutting yourself like you did so the truth can prevail and we can break the cycle. I do it for one reason and for one reason only, to help other survivors. I don't get any money from this. I never got a dime for the documentary. People don't understand that. You don't get paid for documentaries. You can't. It's not allowed. And it's not about the money. For me, it's about helping survivors making them aware of different things that can help them and avenues they can go down to get the help. If you don't have the money, there's rape centers and crisis centers. But it's important as soon as possible to get into therapy. You have to process this. It's a whole damn process. Is there anything you would have changed about the docuseries or the way they told your stories thus far? No, I think Alexandra Dean should have gotten an Emmy nomination, without a doubt. You have no idea how difficult this was. They recorded me for two days. I think Sandra was two days. Mickey was three days. I mean, these are horrific experiences to have to go through and do it all over again. But I don't think I would change anything because I don't remember a lot of it. The crew, they were phenomenal. 
and Alexandra Dean, what a director, what a wonderful woman. The crew shows up at 7 o'clock in the morning, all females. There was one guy that carried equipment, but he was never allowed in my house. And they were crying when I was telling my truths. They were crying, these young girls. They all came up to me and hugged me and said, we feel so bad that you have to go through this, but hopefully this will help. I'm glad you felt so safe amidst the filming. I think that's immensely important to ensure creating ethical true crime content. What have you learned throughout your experiences that you would like to leave our audience with? Trauma, this violence against you is not your fault. You did not do anything to deserve this. We have to, women especially, have to be aware of their surroundings. They have to have their car keys in their hand. They have to make sure before they get in a car, there's no vans parked next to them. When you're in a hotel room, you never want a room next to an elevator. These are things that we have to educate all these women on. But the bottom line is violence against women, it's never about the woman. Yes, these are tools to navigate existing dangers. We can learn to prepare ourselves and be safer in the moment. But again, that violence, that's not on us. It's on the violent predators that we're facing up against. That's right. Thank you for sharing your story, PJ. You are deeply, deeply appreciated. How can listeners get a hold of you with support if they feel inclined to do so? You can feel free to reach out to me at PJ Maston, and that's M-A-S-T-E-N at yahoo.com. Thank you. You're going to continue to change lives by sharing your experiences. My pleasure, honey. Bill Cosby first faced consequences for sexual assault in 2006 when he settled out of civil court with Toronto-based massage therapist Andrea Constand. Finally, after several of Cosby's 60 alleged victims came forward in the media, criminal ramifications were pursued. In 2018, Bill Cosby was convicted of three felony counts of aggravated sexual assault against three different victims. He was sentenced to three to 10 years in a state prison. In December of 2020, after nearly three years of incarceration, he appealed his conviction for the final time and was released because of due process violations. He had previously entered what is called a non-prosecution agreement with a former district attorney, which meant he should not have been charged in the case. He was released in June 2021. However, in 2022, Cosby was found liable in a second civil suit filed by Judy Huff. The court ordered him pay $500,000 to Judy for sexually assaulting her as a minor. No money was awarded for punitive damages. The central tenet of Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, is that traumatic stress deeply relates to chemical and functional changes in our brain, specifically the limbic area and the brainstem. Those two regions are responsible for our behavioral and emotional responses, as well as our regulatory functions like breathing. In other words, it's true. Our residual trauma can affect so many facets of our lives. Repeated trauma has the potential to rewire our brains and in turn, our coping mechanisms. Traumatic disassociation is a common coping mechanism for victims of sexual abuse. Disassociation can be defined as a tendency to disconnect soon after trauma or similarly triggering events. It includes feelings of depersonalization, derealization, detachment from others, and reduced responsiveness to our surroundings. According to a 2015 South African study, 
Traumatic dissociation was identified as the largest predictor of PTSD. People suffering from PTSD often also suffer from severe anxiety disorder, CPTSD, and suicidal ideation, as PJ reports. As the National Health Service of the United Kingdom explains, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD, generally occurs when someone is subjected to recurring or long-term trauma. CPTSD often causes severe behavioral, emotional, cognitive, and physical harm to those suffering from it. It's common for people with CPTSD to report a combination of addiction, depression, anxiety, rage, medical illnesses, or dissociation, to name a few symptoms. In a study done across a span of 25 years and within 41 countries, it was found that 17% of people practice self-harm at some point in their lifetime. Although when certain groups are considered, such as victims of sexual assault, rates can be much higher. The same study found that 45% of people who self-harm are deemed as cutters. Cutting is the act of using a sharp object to mark, cut, or scratch yourself. The act often serves as a temporary psychological coping mechanism. Cutting and self-harm are often practiced by those experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, among many other mental health disorders. Self-harm and cutting specifically is treated uniquely for each person. But according to the Mayo Clinic, treatment often includes a delicate mixture of therapy, medication, and even hospitalization. No matter the exact approach, it's important to find help that will design a comprehensive treatment plan that addresses both the self-harm and the underlying cause of it. For more information and resources about CPTSD, common symptoms, and frequently accompanying disorders or behaviors, please visit the episode notes for resources. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. The documentary was my ability to control the narrative on my own terms rather than let Trump's people do it for me. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.